So continuing on in our theme of joining God in mission. So just to recap again, we're, we're looking at different principles of how to join God in mission, that God's got a mission and he's invited us to, to join him in that. And so first principle we looked at is that, that we're sent people. God has, has called us to be missionaries and we're sent people. We're, we're to be the lizards, not the frogs. We're not to sit back, we're to seek, to go to join him in what he's doing. Number two, we talked about we have to discern God's spirit and his leading. We have to see where God is pushing us and join him in that. And so we're not the rowboats who just try to work hard and, and uh, um, although we can't be lazy and let God do all of it. He wants us to cooperate with him. But instead of being a rowboat, we're sailboats. And we let the sail cast out and he, we let God blow us where he wants us to go, even if it's places we don't want to go. And then number three, we talked about serving the world, that the church is kind of like an airport and we're not necessarily the destination of God's blessings, although we do receive uh, the blessings of Christ, but we're to be a connector of those blessings with the rest of the world. And so we're to serve the world. Um, tonight, or this afternoon, as we close, I want to talk about a fourth principle that really kind of undergirds, I think, uh, what a lot of what I've been saying. Because if you're really going to join God in mission, um, like Paul in Acts 16, like dying to yourself in Mark 8, sometimes doing those kinds of things can be a little bit scary and fearful. And so if we're going to join God in mission, we have to be willing to choose faith over fear. I want to begin by imagining with you that you're getting ready to walk into a room. And in this room, there are going to be four people. And I'm going to, I'm going to describe the four people to you. The first person in the room is an African-American man who is probably in his 50s. He's had a pretty rough life. He's a struggle with prostitution. And because of that, he has AIDS. That's the first guy. Second person is a female, white female. She's probably in her 40s. Um, she too has had a fairly rough life. And for a period of her time in her life, she was involved in a lesbian relationship. She's not in it now, but that's, that's her background. Third person in the, in the room is a guy who's got a lot of tattoos. He's a white guy, but he's got a bunch of tattoos all over his, his arms. And uh, he has been in and out of prison or off on parole for about 40 years. He's out now, been out for a little while, but for about 40 years, he's been in and out of prison for his life. And then the fourth person is a big guy, white guy. He... He received a sizable inheritance from his father and he took that inheritance and he blew through it very quickly because of his alcoholic and drug struggles. And he blew through it basically until he was broke and he ended up starting to sleep on, under bridges and overpasses because he didn't have any place to go. So those are the four people. Now that you know the four people in the room, how do you feel about going into that room? Do you want to go into the room at all? What are the emotions that you have? If your children are with you or grandchildren are with you, do you want them to go into the room? Or are you going to say, you stay outside while I go in? And if you go into the room, who are you going to sit by? 
Are there certain people of the four that you don't want to sit, sit by? Certain people of the four you don't really want to touch or be around? What are your emotions as you think about walking into a room with those four people? Now, I bring that up because sometimes perceptions do not match reality. We can have a certain perception of a person or a place or a neighborhood or a city that actually is not consistent with what is real. And, and we do this all the time, don't we? We hear someone say something and we think we heard them correctly and we make a perception based on what we thought we heard, but it turns out that's not exactly what they said. Or we see someone get mad and we think we have a perception in our mind on why that person got mad and what was going on in their life and we start to make judgments based on that when that is not the situation at all. Or we see a situation going on with a parent and a child and we make a perception about that. We have a certain idea about that when that is not reality at all. We do that all the time. We have perceptions and sometimes those perceptions do not match with reality. Let me give you an example, okay? Work with me here. How many of you believe that we are living in a safer environment now in 2016 than let's say the 1950s. Okay, everyone's shaking their head. If you think we were safer in the 1950s than we are now in 2016, I want you to raise your hand. Okay. Oh, John wasn't born there, so we definitely were safer. Um, <laughs> I, 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 think that's, I think that's a pretty fair perception that, that we consider America in 2016, a much more dangerous and violent place. And so if you have small kids as a parent, you don't let your kids play outside. Or if you do, you monitor them very closely because we're afraid of what might happen. If you're elderly, you are often very afraid of someone taking advantage of you, hurting you, doing some kind of violent act to you. Um, we, we have those, those feelings. We lock, the, the, lock our cars we lock our houses because we, we assume that we live in a pretty dangerous time. But if you look at the statistics, folks, the hard, cold facts of statistics, that perception does not match up with reality. If you look at the statistics of violent crime from 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s to today, violent crime has been steadily decreasing in our country. To the point where now, in 2016, as an American, you are probably more safe in terms of violent crime than in any other American who's lived in this country. Hang on, Steve, this just can't be true. But it is, that's what the statistics say. And parents of small children need to be a lot more concerned about swimming pools than strangers snatching their children off the street because drowning is one of the top ways that children die. And some of you have swimming pools in your backyard. How dare you? I'm just joking. And elderly, those of you that are elderly, you are the least likely victim of a violent crime. You're the least likely victim. We think the elderly are the most, the ones who are going to get it, but according to statistics, least likely victim. Okay, Steve, if that is not, if our perception doesn't match up with reality, why do we have this perception? Well, probably the reason why we have this perception is because we live in a time where there is a 24-7 news cycle. 
And so whenever there's any kind of violent action in our country, it is promoted on the media over and over and over and over again. And we see that and it scares us. And we begin to perceive we are in a dangerous, dangerous time and it creates within us fear. Perceptions that we have about people and about the world around us create within us fear. And if we're not careful, it is that fear that is based on false perceptions that can keep us from doing what God has called us to do and what God has commanded us to do. I want you to take your Bibles and open them to Numbers 13. Numbers 13. And we're going to look at this text together in this session. Numbers 13. So Numbers 13, we have the story of the people of Israel where they are on the brink of the land of Canaan. And if you remember your Old Testament, Israel, they have been rescued from Egypt by the power of God, through the leadership of Moses. They have been brought through the Red Sea, walked across on dry land. They have been taken to Mount Sinai where they have been given the law. And now they are on the brink of the promised land, ready to cross over the Jordan to where God is gonna give them a land. Well, before they do that, uh, Joshua decides to send 12 spies into the land to survey the land. And his goal is, I think, threefold on what he's trying to do. Number one, he wants the spies to see is the land a good land or not? Is it fertile or is it barren? Number two, he wants them to check out the people. Are the people big, big people tall, strong, or are they not? And then number three, he wants them to check out the cities. Are the cities fortified or are the cities not fortified? Are they open for the taking or do they have big walls that we're going to have to scale. And so they send the 12 spies out, one from each tribe. He sends them out for 40 days. They go do their work. Then they come back after the 40 days and they come with a, a report. And the report is, well, Joshua, there's good news and there's bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is that the land is good. The land is really good. In fact, remember they cut off a whole cluster of grapes to show how good and fertile the land is. <coughs> But here's the bad news, Joshua. The bad news is that the people are, are tall and strong and they're big. And in fact, I want you to notice this one little part because I think it's kind of funny. He says, um, if I can find it exactly, uh, yes, verse 28. It says, the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Don't you love that line? Do you know who the descendants of Anak were? They were like the pro athletes of the ancient world, okay? They were like the LeBron James of the ancient world. And so they said, we even saw the descendants of Anak. These people are incredible. And the cities are strong and fortified. Now, after they give this report, they don't offer a recommendation yet. They just, they're just giving the report. We're telling you what we saw. And then Caleb, one of the 12 spies, steps forward. <clears throat> I have a recommendation. He says, we should go take the land because we can do it. And when he makes that recommendation, the other spies all of a sudden are in an uproar. 
and they start immediately trying to counteract what Caleb has recommended and said, we can't do that. In fact, it says they start spreading a negative report and they start exaggerating the claims. Sounds like media today, right? They start exaggerating the claims. And they say, well, the land we explored, it devours those living in it. No, it doesn't. They're exaggerating the claims. And all the people we saw there of great size. No, they aren't. They're exaggerating the claim. All of them are? That can't be true. And we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. Hello, we can't do the deal with the descendants of Anak. But notice the last line. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. If you're a person who writes in your Bible, I want you to underline that and put perception. That was their perception. Their perception was there is no way that we can compete with these guys in Canaan. They're big, strong, their cities are fortified. We can't do this. That was their perception. And their perception did not match up with reality, but that was their perception. Well, when the people hear the spies, their uproar, on behalf of Caleb's recommendation, it says the people are thrown into chaos. And notice what the people do. Verse one of chapter 14. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, hang on a second, guys. Let's just, let's just stop for a second. I mean, what, what has God done for you? I mean, think about all that God had done and brought Israel through up to this point. I mean, he had done the 10 plagues to bring them out of Egypt. He had caused the Red Sea to part. Seemed like that would have made a big impression on them, don't you think? The Red Sea to part so they can walk across on dry land. He had taken them to, the Mount, to Mount Sinai where there had been thunder and lightning and smoke and had, he had spoken the words that, that caused them to tremble as they saw the power and holiness of God. Did they forget Sinai already? He had given them manna from heaven to survive with food. He'd given them quail. He'd given them water from the rock. Over and over again, we find story after story of God providing for his people and they hear one negative report from the spies and what are they ready to do? Toss it all out the window and let's go back to Egypt. You know, sometimes we forget very quickly how God has provided for us all along the way. And one little problem comes up and we are ready to throw our faith out the window. It's amazing how we can do that. And we, it's almost like we have to be reminded over and over again, God's always faithful. He's always faithful. But here is Israel. They forgot that. And so Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua, they stand before the crowd. And I love this part of the story. They stand before the crowd and they say, hang on guys, the issue, the issue about taking the land of Canaan is not about whether the people are strong and tall. It's not about whether the cities are fortified. The issue in taking the land of Canaan is whose side is the Lord on? And they say, the Lord, he's on our side. 
He's on our side. And if he is on our side, we can go to Canaan and Canaan will be ours because God is with us. That's the issue. Whose side is the Lord on? And you know what the people did when they heard that speech, that impassioned speech? It says they picked up stones. They were ready to kill their leaders. Ready to kill their leaders because of what? Their perceptions had created. Their negative perceptions had created within them fear. And that fear was so strong, they were ready to stone their leaders. That fear had caused them to forget all the good things that God had done for them. That fear had caused them to forget what God had commanded them to do. And it does, the same thing can happen to the church. And I forgot to go forward on the PowerPoint. Sorry, guys. But the bad report and the negative perception created fear, and fear caused the people to forget the promises of God. And it's and that happens with the church. That the church can do the very same thing. That God has told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. He has called us to be a light in a dark world. He has called us to make disciples of all nations. And yet sometimes we see people and see neighborhoods and we have certain perceptions about them and that perceptions fill us with fear. Because the reality is, is when, when this church, when Bedview Hills, when y'all start living out some of these principles and you start being sent and you start being lizards, you start going where the sail well, the, the wind takes you and you start being in that airport that's taking God's blessings and blessing the rest of the world, people are gonna hear about that in the neighborhood and they're, and they're gonna really like that because they're, there's a lot of people who need to be blessed in the world and they're not being blessed because they're being hurt and broken by sin. And so when a church starts blessing them, they're gonna start coming to that church. But the thing about it is, is those people might not look like you and they might not look like me. They might dress a little bit different. They might have tattoos on their arms. They might have long hair. They might have an earring in their ear. They might speak a different language. They might just be of a different background. Maybe they weren't raised in the church. Maybe they don't know all the Bible stories like all of our kids do. They're gonna be a little bit different. And it's very easy when someone who's a little bit different than us comes in, we can start to have these perceptions about who they are and that those perceptions create fear and that fear causes us to forget God's promises and to forget what he has commanded us to do. Let me give you an example, and it's a sad example, but we have a lady at our church whose dad became a Christian as a child. He was living in an unchurched home, but he had a little friend down the street who they would get together to play and his friend went to the church nearby and so his friend invited him to come to church and through that relationship and through coming to church as a child he eventually became a Christian well when he grew up he made the conscious decision that he was going to do whatever he could to try to help little children come to church because that's how he became a Christian and so he he single-handedly he single-handedly started his own ministry. I love people like this. Just started his own ministry of going around throughout different neighborhoods and just picking up kids who just wanted to come to church. 
And he, and he got one of the church vans and he started doing that and he'd bring a van load of kids to church. Now, most of them from unchurched homes. And so because of that, when they'd come to church, well, they dressed a little bit differently and they smelled a little bit differently and they talked about different kinds of things and they just didn't, they didn't behave like normal church kids did. And, and that kind of, you know, ruffled a few little feathers. And so the elders called them in. And they say, you know, we don't think you should use our van to pick up these kids because after all, that's a liability. And if, one of the, if there was a wreck and one of these kids were hurt, we'd be responsible. We don't really want that liability. So we don't think you should pick up these kids with our church van. No problem, no problem, he said. And he went out and he bought his own van. <laughs> I love that. Went out and bought his own van. And there was someone who was helping him and they bought a pretty good sized car too because they wanted to, to help with this ministry. And they kept bringing the kids, kept picking up the kids and all this kind of stuff, bringing them to church. But it still bothered some folks. It still ruffled their feathers. And so the elders called them in again and said, you know, this, this, just, this ministry, it's just not working out, you know. It's just not going to work. These kids, you know, just don't really know how to behave. And, and so we'd really appreciate it if you'd stop bringing these kids to church. I can't understand elders who could say that. Because didn't Jesus say, let the children come to me, for these are the kingdom of heaven. But they said that because they had a perception in their mind of what was happening with these children and what was happening at church and that created within them fear. And when we have fear, fear of what someone might do or fear that someone might leave or fear of this or fear of that, it can cause us to forget what God has done in our history. It can cause us to forget what God has commanded us to do, to go and make disciples of all nations. And so if we're going to be join God on mission, we've got to deal with fear because at some point, you're going to feel it. At some point, the leaders are going to feel it. John tells me that on Sunday afternoon, y'all can go out and pass out hot dogs, which is great. You might feel a little fear then. Fear, what's going to happen if I talk to someone about Jesus? What if they don't like what I say? Or maybe someone I'm going to talk to, but they look a little different. They're from a different background than me. What's going to happen then? We're going to feel fear. If we're going to join God in mission, we have to deal with fear. We've got to work with that. N.T. Wright, who is a well-known biblical scholar, he has written one of his books about the most often repeated command in Scripture. You know the most often repeated command in Scripture? It's not come to church. <laughs> it's not even be baptized. The most often command in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, it's on the lips of a lot of different people, it's on the lips of angels, it's on the lips of prophets, it's on the lips of, of other preachers and teachers. Here's the command, it's do not fear. It's the most often repeated command in scripture. Because, because God knew that we would need to hear that over and over Again, I appreciate John because he has put these wonderful banners around. Don't y'all love these banners? I like them. And John, I would encourage you to add one more banner somewhere. And that, and that banner, well, now it's just me. I haven't talked to the elders, okay? But um, we need one more banner in here. And it needs to say, do 
not fear. And whenever we feel those, those negative perceptions and whenever we start to get a little anxious and we start to be a little fearful, we just look at that banner. Do not fear. And so when we're teaching our children's Bible class and we got a couple of kids in there who are from the community and they don't know how to behave, we look at the banner. Do not fear. And when the elders are making decisions about how things should work at church and, and we're not exactly sure how this is all going to work out and we're not exactly sure what people are going to think about this and we're starting to get a little bit anxious, starting to get a little fearful, we look at that banner. Do not fear. Christians should not make decisions based on fear. We should make decisions based on faith. Amen. A definition of faith that I really like is that faith is what you have where if God doesn't show up, then you're in trouble. And so here we are, we're gonna bring these kids to church and, and, and I don't know exactly how it's gonna work out because they're a little bit rowdy. God's just gonna have to show up. That's faith. You know, we're gonna spend some money so that we can do this new ministry and we're not exactly sure if we're gonna be able to have the money all the time to do this ministry. We're not exactly sure if it's gonna be successful. God's just gonna have to show up. That's faith. And if we're gonna join God in mission, we have to learn to not make decisions based on fear, but instead to make them based on faith. Because the number one tool that Satan uses to kill mission faster than anything else is fear. Fear paralyzes us. It stops us in our tracks. It causes us to where we can't make a decision. We can't step forward. We can't speak the words to someone about Jesus because we're just afraid. And so we need that banner. Do not be afraid. And the funny thing about Numbers 13, like I said, is their perception did not match reality. I want you to flip forward a few pages in your Bible to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Now, if you remember, um, and again, I'm sorry, I've, I've, I keep forgetting to go forward on my PowerPoint, but if you remember the story once they responded in fear the way they did, God said, okay, if you're, not, if you, if you're gonna be afraid, then you're not gonna go across the Jordan to the land of Canaan and you're gonna have to go in the wilderness. And so they march around the wilderness for 40 years so that this generation that's fearful will die off and a new generation that is faithful will rise up. And they, for, after 40 years, they end up at the same place on the brink of the Jordan River, ready to cross over into Canaan. And once they are there on the brink, Joshua, which I think I said Joshua earlier about sending out the spies. Correct that in your mind or you're in your notes, please. It was Moses who sent out the spies. <laughs> Joshua since decides to send out spies again. So at this time, it didn't send out 12, it sends out two. They don't go throughout all the land, they just go to Jericho. And in Jericho, they go see this prostitute named Rahab. Remember that story of Rahab? And, and they're there at Rahab's house and the guards of the king of Jericho hears that there's some spies and so he sends out guards to try to find these spies. And they come to the house of Rahab and Rahab hears that guards are coming and so she hides those two spies on the roof underneath some stalks of flax and she tells the guards, oh, they're not here. They went out somewhere else and the guards go on their way. And she protects these two spies. And the two spies come to Rahab afterwards and say, okay, Rahab, okay, why'd you do this? I mean, you had your chance to be the hero and to show the guards where we were. Why did you hide us? Why did you protect us? What was going on here? And Rabbi responds, Rahab, 
What did I say, Rabbi? Ray, it's getting late in the day, folks. Okay, just go with me here. Rahab responds with the longest confession of faith by a woman in the Old Testament. And I want you to notice what she says. And I'm going to flip my next slide here. Notice what she says. <clears throat> in chapter 2, verse 9, she says, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. What does she say? She says, well, the truth of the matter is we are afraid of you. Their perception was we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. I mean, we, there's no way we can compete with them. But the truth was, the reality was, is those guys were shaking in their sandals because they had heard the story of how they had come across the Red Sea and they had heard the story how they had made it through the desert and they were scared to death. And if those Israelites back in Numbers 14, if they had just had the courage to step across the Jordan River and to follow God's leading, they would have seen that their perceptions were wrong and there was nothing to be afraid about. And I firmly believe that, church. Oftentimes, the fear we have is based on negative and false perceptions. And if we would just step forward, if we would just step out in faith, if we would just let God blow our sailboat where he wants us to go, it might not be where we want to go, but if we'll let him do it, even though we're a little bit nervous about it, we will find out once we get there, there was nothing to be afraid about at all. If we would have just trusted God, if we would just walked with God, if we would just stepped out with God, we would have seen him provide for us like he has done over and over and over again and there would have been nothing to be afraid of. That's what it means to join God on mission, to step out in faith over our fear. Whether that's starting a new ministry whether that's serving those around us in our community, whether that's talking to someone about Jesus, just having that spiritual conversation, stepping out in faith, we'll find out, you know what? There was nothing really to be afraid of in the first place. Let me give you a couple of testimonials. Can I do that? What's our time? Okay, great. I got plenty of time. Let me give you a couple testimonials and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be a little bit personal, if that's okay with you. So our neighborhood where our church building is located in Fort Worth, is, it's really just not the best neighborhood. I mean, it's, it's, it's an improving neighborhood, but it's, it's really not the best neighborhood. There, I imagine most of us here, if I took you to the neighborhood, you wouldn't really want to live there. When, I, when we moved to Fort Worth, I went to go get my driver's license at the driver's license office, and the lady there said, so what brought you to Fort Worth? I said, well, I got a job here. And oh, what do you do? Well, I'm a minister. Oh, where, where's the church that you work at? Well, it's, it's on Hemphill Street. That's <clears throat> the street that our church building is located on. And she stopped and said, oh, 
that's a rough area. And my response was, well, that's why we're there, right? To bring light to a dark area. That's what God calls us to do. But that just kind of gives you the, a little bit of the perception about the neighborhood. Well, a few years ago, maybe about three or four years ago, my wife and I felt a call to move into that neighborhood. We felt like we needed to do that because that would provide a, a consistent presence of the church in that neighborhood and that it would extend and expand the ministry of the church in that neighborhood. And along with that decision, we also made the decision to send our children to the neighborhood public school, which is called Day Zavala Elementary. And I try to emphasize Day Zavala because people think think I'm saying days of Allah. It's not, it's not a Muslim school, okay? It's day Zavala public school. And, and as you can imagine in the, in the neighborhood that I'm describing, the public school is not necessarily the best school either. It's a underprivileged school. It's a Title I school. It's, it's a Im improvement required school. Um, they offer free lunch and free breakfast. It, my kids are minorities in every way, shape, and form at the school. But we felt like God was pushing us, pushing our sailboat to put our kids there. I remember as we were thinking through this, um, I, was, I was with our, my, my children at a park a little, ways, a little ways away, actually a couple miles away, different neighborhood. And they were playing at a park and this little grandmotherly type of person sat down next to me and she said, oh, are these your kids playing out here? Yeah, these are my kids. Oh, that's really sweet. And are they in school? And no, no, my, my oldest is going to be in kindergarten in the fall. Oh, is he going to go to this school over here? And, and the school she was pointing at was in a very different neighborhood. It's one of the best elementary schools in Fort Worth. I said, no, he, he's actually going to go to Days of Allah Elementary. And when I said that, her, she gasped, <gasps> you know, and didn't say anything. And uh, <clears throat> just kind of turned away and and she turned back around and said, well, I substituted there one time, never again. I'm like, okay, th thank you for your encouragement. <laughs> but we made this decision, and yes, there was some anxiety, and yes, there was some fear. What's going to happen? Are we, is this going to be a safe place for us to live? Are we going to be able to survive living in this neighborhood? What's going to happen to our kids? Are our kids going to get a good education? Are they going to have friends? You know, all of those questions. And we still wrestle with those questions, folks. I mean, we still do. And, and we may decide uh, this year to, to make a change. Who knows? I mean, we, we reassess our situation every year. But what we have noticed, and here's a picture of the school, what we've noticed over and over again as we took a little step of faith and stepped over that Jordan River, God was there. And God has been faithful like he's been faithful over and over and over again. And he has blessed us. And so, so for example, we've been able to make friends with, with our neighbors down the street. We have been able to be incredibly involved at the school. I'm actually the PTA president, which please pray for me on that. I'm the PTA president of elementary school, but it has opened doors for ministry We've, we have people from our church who mentor fourth graders <clears throat> at the school. We have people from our church who help out with some of the school activities. We have people from our church who are reading with first graders. It has been an incredible outlet of ministry for our church. And then 
maybe the best part, we have teachers and we have kids and their parents who now are attending Southside. And what we have seen in this little moment of faith is just when we step out in faith beyond our fear, those negative perceptions that we heard about from others, those negative perceptions we find are not exactly true and God blesses us over and over again. You know, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all the other things will be added to you as well. And I believe that to be true, don't you? And if we're a church that seeks first the kingdom of God and we step out in faith, God will help us and he'll strengthen us. Let me give you another example. I'm going to flip over a couple slides here. Anybody recognize those two folks? That's Dr. Kent and Amber Brantley. Kent and Amber, in 2013, decided to move to Liberia to work as medical missionaries. Kent is a doctor, and he was going to work in a medical clinic or actually a medical hospital right outside of Liberia, or Monrovia, Liberia. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but Kent and Amber were sent to Liberia from our church, Southside in Fort Worth. Ken and Amber are really good friends with me and Lindsay, and we count them as very special people. And we sent them to be medical missionaries. And if you know their story, in 2014, the Ebola virus kind of reared its, reared its ugly, ugly head, and it started to infiltrate Liberia. And at that point, Ken and Amber had a choice to make. They had to choose, do we going to stay and minister to the people who are struggling with Ebola, or do we leave? Do we flee? And no doubt they had to have some fear in that moment and some anxiety about what's going to happen. But they stayed. They stayed. And they began to minister to the Liberian people. And sure enough, some people with Ebola came to that hospital, and, and Kent started to minister to them and treat them and care for them. But then he contracted the disease. And I still remember getting that phone call that, that Kent had tested positive for Ebola. It just hit us like a rock. And our church just immediately started praying, praying, praying for Kent and Amber, for their two kids, and that somehow God would intervene. And the, and the story goes, if you, if you don't know the story, they wrote a book about this story, by the way, and it's a great book. But the way the story goes is he got sicker and sicker and sicker. And, and, and the fatality rate of Ebola virus disease is somewhere around 50 to 90%. And so we knew that the odds were not good for him to survive. But we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And, and then on Thursday, he had got sicker and sicker and sicker. And the Thursday of that week after he had been diagnosed, it had come to the point where he knew he was dying. In fact, he tells, told, tells the nurse that he is dying, and I don't know what's going to happen next, but I can tell you I'm dying right now. And that's when they made the decision that they were going to give him an experimental drug called ZMAP that had never been given to a human being before, ever. And we were going to see what was going to happen. And Amber knew that that was going to happen, and so she texted all of her friends and neighbors, people from church, and we got that text and it said, be on your knees right now for Kent. And so we stopped what we were doing and me and my wife, we prayed for him. And he was given that experimental drug and something happened. His body started convulsing and then it stopped and then he started immediately to have a sense of recovery. And he kind of started to move forward. And then eventually they were able to care flight him back to Atlanta, to Emory Hospital. And there with the good care of the doctors there, he was able to be nursed back to health. And what's incredible about this story is that here's a couple who take a step of faith, 
who step over their fear and go into Liberia and they minister in a very difficult time and then things get difficult and things get hard. It doesn't mean that when we step out in faith, it's all going to be roses from here on out. Sometimes it's going to be hard, but they keep seeking the Lord. We pray to the Lord and God answers our prayer and they're able to survive And it's almost as if God says, do you really want to trust me? Do you really want to follow me? Then I'll give you the platform to give you glory. And when he left Emory Hospital, there was a press conference. And he told me later, he said, you know, Steve, I thought that press conference is going to be like, you know, 50 people, you know, from newspapers or whatever, you know, wanting to do a little article or something like that. So I prepared a little speech. When he got to the room, it was filled with 200 people and there were uh, TV cameras on him. 18 million people saw that press conference and they all got to hear him proclaim his faith in Jesus. When we step out in faith over our fear, God says, you know what? If you're going to take this step, I will give you the platform to bring me glory and I will be there for you. In Kent Amber's book, they talk about how what they learn from this experience is that when you follow God's call, he gives you what you need to be faithful to his call. And I believe that to be true. When we as a church, when we join God in mission and we step out in faith and fear, God joins us and he gives us what we need to be faithful to our call. And so this is a key part, joining God in mission not giving in to our perceptions, not giving in to our fear, but stepping out in faith. As I close, let me just remind you of how I started. Remember that room? The four people? Remember the four people? African-American males got AIDS, woman who has lesbian background, man who has tattoos all over his arm, been in and out of jail for 40 years, man who blew through his inheritance because of his alcoholic addiction. How, how did you feel about going into that room? I'll tell you how I would feel. I would feel great joy because those four people are my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's Southside Church of Christ. And that's what God can do when we step out in faith. He transforms people. And the perceptions that we have of others are actually not often true. And if we will trust in him, he will provide what we need to be faithful to him. I'm going to stop there. Anyone have a comment, final comment or final word or question? And then I'll lead us in prayer. Anybody? (laughs) We're ready to be done, right? (laughs) We're all tired. When you're saying rabbi instead of Rahab, you know you're tired. <laughs> Good. Well, let's, let me lead us in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the, the just chance to be together and just to think about what it means to be disciples and, and what it means to join you in mission. And Lord, I'm thankful for the people here because I know that they, they wouldn't have invested this amount of time if they didn't really care about, about seeking you, and I pray that you'd bless them for it. And I pray, pray a blessing on this church and the elders and the leaders here that, that they can step out in faith and not fear. 
And whenever those, those feelings, those, those perceptions and those anxieties and those fears start to fill us up, I pray that this church will, will look at that, that banner that says, do not fear, that, that scripture, do not fear. And we'll remember, we just need to step out in faith. God will help us. God will be there. God will strengthen us because you always do. You did it for Israel. You did it for your son, Jesus. You do it for your church today. Pray that you'd help us to do that. Help us to not be afraid, but to step out in fear or step out in faith to follow you where you lead. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.